This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthad.com.au. How will you manage your patients with severe depression, severe sleep disorder, and has suicidal ideation. When should we really get concerned? And what shall we do about it? This second podcast in the series of depression and sleep disorders by Dr. Chris Blackwell will add to your ability to manage this difficult but common condition. Dr. Blackwell, tell us about yourself. I'm a consultant psychiatrist. I'm just a general consultant psychiatrist. I see all sorts of patients. I have work in private practice and I have the good fortune to work at the Walcott Clinic, um, which is in Glebe in Sydney, where they see people with sleep and respiratory disorders. And I've had a long-standing interest in sleep and sleep disorders, um, stretching right back to when I was a medical student. Um, However, I've gone off and trained in psychiatry, which was the most unusual thing for anybody who was interested in sleep disorders. There aren't a lot of psychiatrists who are directly interested in sleep disorders, but hopefully we're slowly recruiting more. You know, most general practitioners, when they're referring to a psychiatrist, would hope that they have some understanding of sleep disorders. And I hope so too, because I'm one of the doctors that actually educates psychiatrists in in sleep. What do we do with people with more severe depression? And the thing that you have to recognise with more severe depression is people have suicidal thoughts. And this is the thing that freaks most people. We're all terrified our patients are going to kill themselves. It's important to remember that suicidal thoughts are a normal symptom of severe depression. People who are ruminating on suicide are common in people. It's a common symptom in people with severe depression. That doesn't mean that they have a concerned plan to actually kill themselves, but it does mean that you need to take the risk of that quite seriously. So this goes back to what medications we use. So if we're thinking about trying to get people to sleep, getting them to sleep more effectively helps improve their comfort and does diminish their risk of actually harming themselves down the track. But you're also thinking, okay, SSRI, SSRI at increased dose. If that fails, then you're going to move to a mixed agent. You might move to a mixed agent like an SNRI, duloxetine, or a mixed agent where duloxetine or venlafaxine or desvenlafaxine, all of which are good mixed agents. I probably would reserve tricyclics, which some of the older ones amongst us, we remember using tricyclics and we have some expertise in using tricyclics, but I'd probably recommend tricyclics as a third or fourth line antidepressant treatment. And these days, I'd probably be inclined to use amitriptyline or nortriptyline more than I would use the other tricyclics. That's personal preference. Uh, Everybody has particular preferences. Tricyclics themselves are interesting in terms of managing sleep. 
Tricyclics at very low doses, do doses of 10 milligrams of amitriptyline up to maybe 25 milligrams of any of them are almost pure antihistamines. And so will work quite well to get people to sleep. And in older practice, people were commonly prescribed small doses of antidepressants, doctors thinking they're treating their depression, but in fact, all they are doing is treating their sleep problems. Having said that, that relieved significant distress for a lot of people and actually helped their mood. Um, so while they weren't formally treating their depression at those sort of doses, they were doing something appropriate and, and helpful. I think I'm a little concerned about using tricyclics given the risk profile, but I always use the use when I'm explaining the use of tricyclics with patients who are more severely depressed, that they are more dangerous than the older than the newer drugs. But in terms of dosage and danger, they approximate paracetamol in the sense that if you take too many paracetamol, you're in very severe trouble. If you take too many tricyclics, about the same number of tablets as it, or the same amount increased on the daily dose, you're in the same territory in terms of danger. Different mode of killing people, but certainly dangerous. The other issue with using tricyclics is it's something that you'd be very wary about using, despite their demonstrated efficacy in someone where you thought there was a significant risk of suicide, because it is the sort of drug that people would use to effectively kill themselves. Remember that the SSRIs have an extraordinary tolerance and it is extraordinarily difficult to kill yourself through overdosing on an SSRI. It is possible, but the doses that people have taken are Herculean. They get sick, but they are very unlikely to die from very large doses of SSRIs, unless, of course, they have um, problems with their QT interval, in which case, you know, that they're a little bit more susceptible. Most people who take really large overdoses of SSRIs survive. They are sick, they do end up in ICU, but they don't tend to die, which makes them a very, it's one of those drugs you can prescribe and think, okay, they're probably not going to kill themselves with this. It's a safe thing to, to do and to send them home with it. Just as a side in terms of efficacy, and we were talking about alcohol before, the way in which I explain the fact that if you are being treated for depression and you have problems with sleeping, alcohol is something I'd advise you not to have, is that alcohol specifically antagonizes the serotonergic promoting effect of antidepressants. It's one of the mechanisms where alcohol, even moderate amounts of alcohol, make antidepressants not work. It's one of the commonest reasons why people are not getting a response to an antidepressant. So it's always important to try and tell people to not drink or to minimize their alcohol intake when they're on antidepressants. Anecdotally, people describe an increased effect of the alcohol when they're on antidepressants to double or treble the relative dose. And I always explain that as well. You know, if you're going to take antidepressants and you're going to take alcohol, then you know, your likelihood of having problems associated with it are dramatically increased, but you're also not getting your best value from your antidepressant. A lot of people say, oh, it's okay if you drink a little. Actually, it's better if they don't drink at all. So it's an important, important issue in terms of treatment and treatment of depression and in terms of treatment of sleep problems in that kind of context. So talking about high-risk patients, which I think is always important, most of us have seen people with very severe insomnia who are desperate and who are severely depressed and who are expressing, I can't go on, 
I can't do anything. I don't want to live like this. I don't want to keep living. Getting their sleep under control is also improving their safety. But I always have this when I'm treating depression, the cautionary note, which I insert in this point, the beatific smile. I want people to always remember when you're treating depression, if a patient suddenly gets better, someone you've been worrying about, you've had that gut-churning fear that they're going to do something dire, always be sensitive when you see a sudden improvement in their mood. It may mean that they're getting better from their antidepressant treatment, and that's a real getting better with their antidepressant treatment more correctly, and that's a wonderful thing. But it may also mean that they're now motivated enough and organised enough to go out and actually complete suicide. And someone who says, oh, I feel so much better now, doctor, everything's fine, I'm going to be okay, all of a sudden is a warning sign for an acute, severe suicide risk. And if you hear somebody do that, well, they come in with a serene smile on their face, that's when you know, pull out all the stops, that person is high risk. One of those, oh God, moments. Chris, I, I really remember those moments and they stay with you for life. But my question is when you say pull out all the stops, does it mean you just hang them in there and you schedule them? How, how far do you go? Are they accepting treatment is the first question. Do they accept that they're depressed and are they prepared to accept treatment? If they're prepared to accept treatment, there's seldom a role for scheduling somebody. But if somebody is in that state and you have a well-founded belief that they are at high risk of harming themselves or in particular of completing suicide, then it is reasonable to write a schedule document. Now, remember, just as an aside, a schedule document is not a diagnosis. It is not the be-all and end-all. This doesn't force treatment. What a scheduling document does in most jurisdictions is mean the person must be conveyed to a hospital for assessment. It doesn't guarantee that the hospital will keep them. It doesn't guarantee that they'll be contained and locked up in a ward. All it does is guarantee that that person will be conveyed to a hospital and assessed. General practice and in private psychiatric practice, we don't often write schedules. But where you do, it's where you're really scared that something terrible is going to happen. And if you're, scared, if you're having that feeling, you're writing the schedule. It's the same advice I give to patients that if you're asking the question, should we call an ambulance, you should be dialing the ambulance. Because your gut feeling at that point is something is seriously wrong. Go with that feeling. The worst can happen is that person will be sent to hospital and assessed. They may be angry with you for it. They may be upset. They're, you know, they may be demeaned. They may feel insulted by it. But you're acting in good faith to save their life. That's when you can write a schedule. But if people are accepting treatment, then pulling out all the stops means they're going to need very close monitoring. They may need hospitalisation. At the very least, these days, we have acute care after hours teams in many areas who they need to be linked in with. The hard part, I imagine, in general practice, as it is in private psychiatry, is that this process is actually very time consuming. And patients don't necessarily want to sit there while you make all of these phone calls. But it is necessary to provide good quality care. 
if people will engage with you and are happy to take your touch, just the idea that somebody is there. It goes back to, to in terms of dealing with someone who's acutely suicidal, the trick is to keep them talking and try and help them not feel that sense of despair late in the evening. So getting them to sleep at night can be a crucial way of getting them to remain safe. Mm-hmm. The fact sending them home. If you've got somebody who is that severely depressed, you really want to treat their sleep problem. You really want to treat their insomnia. And in those sort of situations, you probably start to think about major tranquilizers. And I would use at that point the atypical antipsychotic medications as opposed to just the benzodiazepines. Because if you're worried that they're suicidal, you're also worried that some of their thinking has stepped over that through the looking glass into that they're not thinking clearly, they're actually psychotic. And in those situations, the doses, the the drugs I would usually use in that circumstance would be a lanzapine for very short-term use only, bearing in mind it's association with fairly significant weight gain. I might also consider um, quetiapine in in reasonable doses to get them to sleep. Both of those drugs are very good mood stabilizers and augmenting antidepressants in and of themselves. And some of them will actually convert somebody who's not responding to an antidepressant to a responder to antidepressant. But they're both exploiting the antihistaminergic effect to get people to sleep. And if you're worried of somebody acute risk, you want them to sleep. You want them to sleep through the night and you want them to wake up not feeling nearly as despairing. You want to get on top of that sense of initial insomnia and despair. And when people are that depressed, no amount of cognitive therapy, no amount of, of any manualized therapy is going to break through to them. They really need medication and they need to know people are around and that they care about them. And those things are what you use as your mainstays of treatment in the very severe situations when you're worried about people who've got sort of, if you like, malignant insomnia associated with severe depression and suicidality. The other end, the people who wake up early in the morning with melancholic depression who will lie there and ruminate. One of the useful things to do with those folks is say, get out of bed, because lying there and ruminating, they're actually making themselves worse. Not only are they on a wonderful behavioural program to teach themselves not to sleep in bed, because they're ruminating and they're associating, unconsciously you're associating bed with unpleasantness. Ruminations don't actually help you cope with depression. And you know that brain function through the night changes. And usually between the sort of hours of about 3.30 and 5.30, our frontal lobes are not working particularly well. And so when people are ruminating, they're going through all of their worries but their ability to actively and accurately process the information and achieve any real um, solution is dramatically impaired. You see this in people without depression. If you look at the fatality rate on the road, the fatality rates uh, dramatically escalate between 4.30am and 5.30am, even though, and I speak from experience, driving at that time of night, there's very few people on the road. Actually, that's the highest risk period for people to die on the road. Even though the volume of traffic is very low, it's when people are most likely. And it's because most people's brain is saying, look, you really should be asleep now. You're not processing things quickly. Your frontal lobes aren't working particularly, your frontal temporal network is not working particularly well. And, you know, confronted with a novel stimulus like an emergency, you're not going to handle it as well as you do if you're, you're fully wide awake. 
So the same applies when people are waking, having early morning waking associated with severe depression. Their worries are not worries that they can solve. And so talking to patients about when you're ruminating about this, you're not actually sorting your problems out. You're better off getting up if you can and doing the simple and ordinary. So you, it, this is about structure. You get them into the morning light. You get them to, to actively do something. Now, if they're waking up before dawn, even getting them up at that point, they're able to get up and just having a wash and doing the ordinary things that you need to do, just giving them simple one step at a time, one thing to think about, not multiple things. Because what happens when you're ruminating and you're sleepless is that you can't process all of that information. Even if you were wide awake, you wouldn't be able to process it. But when you're half awake or you, uh, your brain's half awake, you're just on a hiding to nothing. But, and a lot of people with severe depression suffer the, those first thing, ruminations first thing in the morning. They complain, please give me something to bomb me out, doctor. Please things. And so hopefully, if you've been able to medicate them, you may actually keep them asleep through that period so they wake up a little bit later and you can get them up in daylight hours and start to, if you like, dialyze and renormalize their sleep-wake schedule, which is part of treating their depression. It's like getting, trying to force the system back into a much more normal rhythm. You don't necessarily talk about it in those terms, but that's kind of what we're liking to do. We're trying to actually give them bright light first thing in the morning to hit their circadian rhythm, to reinforce normal circadianism, because that changes when you're depressed you know i often when i'm teaching registrars i often say look they say how many of you are sleep doctors and they none of them put their hands up and i say actually you're all sleep doctors because all of us are sleep doctors all of the time and actually teaching people and helping people get back into a normal sleep wake rhythm is part of treating any psychiatric illness particularly in treating depression where it has not only an impact on improving the quality of life person, but actually has an improvement on their response to medication and the ultimate resolution of their symptoms. Uh, a question. Uh, so my patient is uh, very severely depressed. They, they are not responding. I am going to crank up medications because they're going to accept it. Is it also the same time that I would ring a friendly psychiatrist and say, look, I have a problem patient uh, who needs to be seen soon. And that's and that therein lies one of the biggest problems we all face. Um, on a day-to-day basis, there are 20, at last check, there were 24 hours in the day. And the problem that we in private psychiatry have is that we are so, we're often so well loaded with patients, many of whom have chronic presentations, that we find it very difficult necessarily to see someone acutely. And this, I don't have an easy solution for that. I know that there are multiple lines out there. I know that the public sector offers support for people, but it is a real and ongoing problem for which I cannot provide an immediate thing. Most psychiatrists that if you develop a relationship with them, we're happy to ring you back and talk you through what we can, we can at the time. Most of us will try and squeeze people in as soon as we can. But the problem we all face is, 24 hours in the day and then until we can kind of work at things and most psychiatrists work more hours than they should most people are very busy and this is a chronic problem in terms of workforce planning and stuff which i 
it's beyond the scope of this talk. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's worse than that. It's not just 24 hours in a day, Chris. It's also an increasing burden of need out there. So it's it kind of like caught in the middle, you guys. I think what you've identified is actually an important thing in terms of treating sleep problems and depression as well. I think part of the problem is we're not well enough trained at teaching people about how to manage sleep. And we need, it's wonderful to have the opportunity to actually talk about these sorts of things, this sort of circumstance. But I think the other problem that we have is that there have been initiatives to provide psychological services for patients with the hope that that would actually diminish that burden. But what I think it's more effectively done is met a need that wasn't being met previously. Now, overall, I think that that will bring down the problems in the community over a long period of time. But I think a lot of the people who end up being referred to psychologists these days may have got no treatment at all in the past. And so it's actually helped, but it's not necessarily helped those with the most severe and acute needs because they need a different kind of approach. What it's done is relieved suffering that is possibly more long-term and possibly more chronic in that it's actually given people some support and appropriate help and therapies to help people in that situation. I think that's all positive. This is not, do not hear from what I'm saying that I would minimise the effect of having psychologists. And in my own field, in sleep, we've trained some psychologists who work specifically in sleep. And in the, my clinic at Walcott, um, it's not my clinic, I just am one of the people who works there. We have a slew of, of psychologists who are specially trained in working with sleep. They're a relatively small number. They do an extraordinary job of managing patients, but there are, there are nowhere near enough of them. And I'm very grateful for their input so often. And they've taught me so much in terms of managing sleep problems. This talk has already been so helpful, Chris. You have not only identified the problem and helped us to understand how to analyze and therefore prioritize the need. You've given us a really fair idea about how to move forward with non-drug approaches. And if we need a drug approach, which ones are best used at what doses, how to understand drug failure and when to change a drug. You've given us a very clear idea about what to do with the severely depressed person, who's, how to manage them, and the ones who were very depressed coming in with that serene smile that you speak of, how to deal with them as well. So you have already given us some tools that I believe that not every GP has. So you've taken us up several steps along the way. If you have resources or other things that could take us up another little bit, it would be fantastic because this stuff is, we, we face these issues every day, many times a day. Well, as it happens, I was, one of my sleep professorial colleagues sent me a paper on this, which I think is, has been very helpful. In Australia, we live in a very siloed universe. I'm a psychiatrist. We don't, we don't talk about sleep because I talk about sleep, but then I'm unusual in that sense. Um, and we have sleep physicians. And as you're aware, most people who've trained in sleep are sleep physicians who've come down the respiratory track in terms of, that was not a pun, it was quite unintentional. Uh, one of my colleagues in the US who I've actually met, who's a really nice guy from Madison, Wisconsin, a guy called David Plant, 
um, has written a wonderful article in the American Journal of Psychiatry dated um, October 2021, The Evolving Nexus of Sleep and Depression. And I've stolen a couple of things shamelessly from his article, but I'm also mining years of uh, practice as a, as a psychiatrist with an interest in sleep and all of the other people who I've learned so much from in, in terms of the sleep world. I, I've been very lucky in that sense, but it's a great article and I would commend anybody to it. It's actually very accessible. There was a series done on sleep in the MJA some years back, um, which was actually very good in terms of sleep disorders in general. Um, there are other, there are lots of other things out there, but I, David's article is superb. I was, he's, he's a great guy. Um, he's been out to Australia talking to us and he's actually a psychiatrist, but he also takes physician calls. So he's, he's duly trained, which is, you know, pretty impressive. I only have one other question that sits in the back of my mind that worries me. And these are young people with significant depression and sleep issues. Who are the ones whom we should worry about and which agent should we not use in, in the sense of switching and also in the sense of increasing suicidality in young people with depression? The problem is when you're treating middle-aged adults, it's not the same as treating 15-year-olds. One of the problems, and I've never heard a I've never been able to hear a satisfactory resolution of this. If you start treating adolescents with antidepressants and you ask them the question, are you having thoughts of suicide? You suddenly discover that many adolescents have thoughts of suicide. Do we think that giving them SSRIs, which is the usual first-line treatment, increases their risk of talking or thinking about suicide? The answer is I'm honestly not sure because if you don't ask the question, and I suspect for generations nobody ever asked that question because nobody ever thought 15-year-olds would kill themselves, which, of course, is not true. Unfortunately, it's a, it's a growing problem and it has been a major killer in folks under the age of 35 for a long time and indeed in some jurisdictions it's the major killer so the problem you're faced with is if you give them an antidepressant particularly an SSRI does it increase their risk of talking about suicide or thinking about suicide and this has to be held in contradistinction with their risk of completing suicide and I've read various articles which have pointed out the pros and the cons of this argument and the argument that always sits in my mind is the idea that if you ask questions about suicidality, you will find people are more likely to have thought about suicide than you actually imagine. In the modern world, with access to modern social media, there are also phenomena of contagion, that once it, something happens in one area, you know, the information gets passed at social media to others around that social group of that individual. And I think that some of the most tragic things that have occurred in Sydney in the last few years have been partly contagion effects. I'm thinking of several private girls' schools where they've had, if you like, small epidemics of suicide. These have been passed. The, the risk of suicide, there's no particular reason why they would have an increased risk per se, but the number of completed suicides was quite dramatic in several school environments in the past few years. And I think that's a contagion effect associated with you know social media and social pressures so these kids are thinking about suicide so which medications do we use the ssris is still the safest medication 
Prozac, that is, was originally the sort of game changer, you know, fluoxetine, is still the mainstay of treating uh, depression in adolescence, as far as I'm aware. Risk of overdose, very small. Bandage is that it has such a very long half-life. If they forget to take their tablets, doesn't matter very much. Um, disadvantages, if you want to change tablets, you have to give them long washouts. And that's practically a nuisance in the treatment of depression. I would also be mindful that while we would like to deny it, young people are A, at risk of suicide, and B, they're also at risk of substance abuse. And the combination of substance abuse and um, depression is a potent increaser in their risk of actually completing suicide because most folks that attempt suicide attempt suicide in the context of intoxication so that they are depressed but they are also intoxicated and so dealing with a very difficult problem of both substance abuse and mood disorders in an adolescent who may have other issues in terms of abuse or isolation and of course we also have to be mindful that we are watching people, if you like, in neurological turmoil. And this is also the time in life when people are most likely to develop psychotic disorders as well. And so being mindful that their sleep-wake schedule disorder and their mood disorder may actually be prodromal for the development of schizophrenia is something else you have to keep in the back of your mind. And folks with schizophrenia are also at a significant increased risk of killing themselves. Young people who have their first psychotic events are at high risk of, of harming themselves or dying through suicide or misadventure. So it's a very difficult fraught period. So you have to be careful with what you do. The problem too comes back to that issue we were talking about with acute services versus chronic services. The newer services that have been set up to help adolescents are mostly designed to help those who are not at that extreme end yet. And I actually think that's a very sensible approach as long as the resources are still there or have been increased for those who are at the acute phase who are actually uh, things. And it's often quite difficult to access these services. And I think in general practice, uh, I think it's the stuff of sleepless nights for general practitioners that we need to also be mindful in this situation. I think, you know, at that final note, in terms of treating depression and treating sleep disorders, we also have to be mindful as practitioners in the area that we need to look after our own sleep disorders and our own mood disorders and our own mental health associated with the treatment of people with, who have problems. And in a time, uh, I don't know how it is for other people, but I certainly know for myself and for some of my close colleagues, this period with COVID has been particularly telling and creates a series of risks and opportunities that we haven't had before. And most of us are carrying burdens that we haven't previously carried that there are differences in the way we practice now, some of these differences will persist. I think we've had to learn a lot in terms of managing people remotely by Zoom and by telephone, and that that's actually much harder than face-to-face care. I think that most GPs are working a lot harder at the moment than they would have a few years, and they were already working pretty damned hard a few years ago. So this is not a burden that's come on the basis that people were previously not working hard. People were already working hard. And this has added complications and difficulties and anxieties and uh, to people's practice.
And I think that has all had an impact in people's personal sleep. So it's important that we aim to get adequate opportunity to sleep and that we get a reasonable night's sleep in order that we can actually deal with some of these problems. Chris, that's almost a fabulous place to stop. But I will ask if you have one or two key points that you really want to make for GP listeners. First would be be sensitive, engage the patient who has a problem with depression, who has a problem with their sleep. You have this enormous amount of respect and this enormous capacity for building a therapeutic alliance. Exploit it. If your gut feeling is worrying you about a patient in this situation, seek help. Realize that you are actually doing a great job. You're doing, and that you actually need to, to listen to what's actually going on for yourself. Try where possible to help people get to sleep. It will help their mood. Try to treat their mood effectively with non-drug and drug mechanisms. Use sleeping tablets sparingly, but don't not use them. They have a place, particularly in those who've got severe and or unremitting problems with initial insomnia. Not everybody is going to respond to talking therapies. Some people will need medication. Don't be afraid of medication, but be sure to monitor medication, particularly sedatives that are potentially abusable, and review the patient regularly and maintain a sense of connection with that patient where you possibly can. All of those things will improve practice and improve that patient's quality of life and their sense that somebody is there for them, which is one of the things that has been shown to help reduce their risk of actually dying or, or killing themselves. Um, remember that you are physicians and that you need to treat the medical problems associated that, that may trigger depression, worsen depression, or, or coexist with depression and exclude those and treat them where possible because people, when they're depressed, don't look after themselves. People who are having problems sleep with sleep have all sorts of other um, sense of activation. We could talk about inflammation. We can talk about all of those other factors that, uh, that are important, but we don't have time to. But trust yourselves, you're actually doing a good job. Chris, I really value your time. This is such valuable teaching. Thank you for giving me so much of your time today. Thank you very much, David. So good to talk to you. Take care. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that Health Ed has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.